Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton. And tonight we're going to be having a debate between um, two scientists on whether or not the evidence for human evolution is good, you know, whether uh, whether the evidence supports human beings being created de novo, special creation, um, um, miraculous intervention, or whether God used an evolutionary process to bring about the, the human species. Um, and I picked the, the, the debaters that I did because more often than not, I'd say, you know, I haven't been keeping a track on how many debates that I've watched, uh, haven't been keeping a tally, but m- most of the time, in my experience, eight out of 10 of the ones that I have seen have been between a Christian and an atheist. And the debate was framed whether it was an atheism versus atheism debate. Uh, does God exist? And if evolution wins, well, God doesn't. And uh, if evolution loses, well, you know, God created everything. And so theism wins. And so I picked two Christians, one who affirms human evolution and one who uh, disaffirms it or um, rejects it. And the debate is framed because we all we are all presupposing that God is the creator of all things. He is the one who brought us into existence. That is not up for discussion in tonight's debate. Tonight's debate is going to be about how did God do so? Did he use a natural process like evolution or did he directly intervene and, you know, de, de novo create human beings? And Tonight, I want to welcome my guest, Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe. Uh, biochemist Fuzz L. Rana is Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. He is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Humans 2.0, Thinking About Evolution, and Fit for a Purpose. And also... The other uh, the other guest tonight is Aaron R. Yilmaz. Aaron Yilmaz is um, I've lost the um, I've lost the introduction here. Hold on. Aaron's not very impressive. Don't worry about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a nobody. Uh, yeah, let me. See. I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I uh, I was very frantic. I was running late. Um, okay, so sorry about that. Aaron Yilmaz has taught biology at the college level and holds an MS in biology from the University of St. Joseph and a BS in biology with department uh, departmental honors from Oakland University. He is currently pursuing a PhD in biology, uh, evolutionary ecology focus from Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of the book, Deliver Us from Evolution, a, how a scientist's in-depth look at the evidence reveals a surprising harmony between science and God. Uh, and that's actually a wordplay, and it only works if you do it with a with an English accent. Deliver us from evolution. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Anna Yil- Yilmaz, it's good to have you on Cerebral Faith Live tonight. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Evan, for organizing this. And I'm looking forward to uh, hanging out with all th with the two of you. Likewise. Yeah, so tonight, like I said, tonight we are we are all Christians. We all affirm the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and we are all followers of Jesus Christ. And um, today we are going to be debating how did God make us? And um, for those of you watching in the live chat, uh, there will be a period of time um, after, yeah, after the cross-examination period, there will be 20 minutes of Q&A. So again, so just like uh, in debates I've hosted on this channel in, in the past, type your comment in the live chat like this. Uh, the question in capital letters with a colon and then dot 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 whatever you want to say and the reason I w want you to do it like that is because in the past I've accidentally when I've like had Q&A after my um, streamed PowerPoint presentations I've uh, I've selected comments and I've responded to them as though they were directed at me but it was actually two or three people talking in the comment section so if, if there's if there's a very active comment section that will help weed out the actual questions directed at the debaters versus uh, just some people talking to each other. So both of you have 15 minutes. Um, Aaron is going first and let me put this nice DNA background up there. Um, and you can start your opening presentation now. All right. Let's see. Hopefully, uh, let me share my screen, see if this works here. All right, can everybody see that? Let's see, yeah, yeah, it's up there. Okay, can you see? Do you see like the next slide and notes, or you just see the uh, the actual picture I'm trying to show? Yeah, you've got you've got like two. Two windows open down there. Uh, both of them are your slides. It's up there. Okay. Let's see. Let me try that again. I'm a little technologically challenged. Let's see. We'll give this a try. This should work better. I can also... All right, how's this look? There, there you go. It's up there. Okay, excellent. All right. So I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. And I also want to uh, thank Dr. Rana for joining me in this dialogue. Uh, thank you, Evan and Cerebral Faith for hosting this dialogue. And so the arguments I'm going to present tonight, I'm going to present multiple different lines of evidence that all support the conclusion of human evolution. And all these arguments are like these pillars, very strong pillars that independently support a built the roof of a building. And the roof in this case is human evolution. And so you have to knock down more than one or two or even three to knock down the building. And so my first line of evidence is the deep homologies uh, in the deep molecular and genetic homologies that all nine plus million species share. And so why is it that every single living thing on the planet uses the same genetic language and the same genetic machinery, more or less. Why should that be the case unless we share common ancestry? And the first living thing had all those features, and so every descendant does. 
And there are also very deep anatomical homologies in all vertebrates. We all have the same limb bones in the same relative arrangement with this, uh, the same muscles in many cases. And this is hard to understand unless we share common ancestry with uh, an ancestor that had limbs with the same muscle and bone arrangement. Similarly, we have embryological evidence. So embryos start out looking very similar for all vertebrates. And so why is it that in utero, the baby starts out with a circulatory system like that of a fish, an amphibian, then a reptile, and then finally a mammalian type circulatory system? Why do we cycle through three different types of kidneys? First jawless fish, then reptile, then human. And why are we covered with hair even though it's 98.6 degrees in there? So why do we have vestigial organs? These are organs that have no function or reduced function. We have ear muscles that don't do anything. We have organs that will kill us. Uh, babies instinctively will grasp when their hand is stimulated, just like uh, chimpanzee babies do to their furry mothers. Uh, we also have muscles for nictating membranes, third eyelids we don't even have anymore. And we also have four fused vertebrae that in our, uh, in the, our primate relatives actually form part of their tail. Not only that, but we also have atavisms. So atavisms are ancient traits from a long time ago that were mutated, but mutations can undo anything they've done. And so sometimes a mutation uh, brings the trait roaring back to life. And we see this in the case of atavistic tails. This is a rare phenomenon, but these tails come complete with bones and even muscle that can move the tail. And some of these are hereditary. Uh, and also here's a picture of me. I mean, Mark Wahlberg. Uh, you know, difference is uh, negligible. And he has a supernumerary nipple. And so in mammals, you notice like your cat or your dog, they have many nipples along the milk line on their ventral side. And so this is an ancient characteristic that sometimes reappears in humans. And not only that, but we have an excellent, excellent fossil record for hominids spanning the last 8 million years from the times humans and chimps split off up till today. And yes, as Dr. Ronowell mentioned, a lot of the taxonomy of hominids is not settled. Uh, where are they supposed to be in the tree? How do they relate to one another? Is this really a new species or is it just another individual? That is not settled science. That is true. But the takeaway point here is that there's a very clear trend in many, a very clear trend throughout human evolution, such as increased cranial capacity. And so if we look here, we have increasing cranial capacity on the x-axis going left, increasing to the right. And we have millions of years going from 4 million to zero towards the top. And if you look at the lower right left-hand corner, we see the Australopithecines with a very small brain the size of about a chimpanzee's and humans with a size with about a 1500 cc brain at the top right. And if you look at those teal bars, you can see that over the last 4 million years, there's been a consistent increase in uh, brain capacity up to the present day. Uh, and so I want to ask you, if you imagine a, quote, missing link, something truly transitional between an ape-like ancestor and humans, what would we expect it to look like? Well, we would expect it to have a mosaic of derived ancestral features. In other words, we would expect it to have essentially a mix of human and chimp-like traits. And so what do we find about 4 million years ago, smack dab in the middle of human evolution? We find, and mind you, this is a complete skull. This is not a reimagining or filling in the gaps. This is an Australo Australopithecus africanus. And we see that it looks exactly halfway between a chimp-like ancestor and a human. We see a reduced ridge brow, but not as much as humans. We see a less prognathous face, but not quite as flat as humans. And we can also do this for the dentition of the same skull. So chimpanzees have a very rectangular dental arcade. We have a semi-parabolic one. And for uh, Australopithecus, we see something that's in between the two, neither semi-parabolic nor completely square. 
Similarly with the canines, in, Afro, in Australopithecus, we see reduced canines, not as much as humans, but more than so than chimpanzees. And we see less sexual dimorphism as, than, as in chimps, but not quite as little as in humans. And not only that, but these creatures walked upright. So from at least four or five million years ago, they were walking upright, possibly even six million years ago. And we know that from a few features of their anatomy. So if you look at the skull on the right, that's a quadruped skull. Something like your cat or dog has the spinal cord enter the skull at the back. Something like us, that's a biped. We have the spinal cord enter the skull directly underneath our foramen magnum. And so these skulls of Australopithecus and Artipithecus several million years ago, they have a skull like ours in that it comes directly from beneath. They walked upright, very likely. We can also look at their hips. The hips of bipeds are very different from that of quadrupeds, as you can see comparing the chimp, the human, and the Australopithecus uh, hip. We can also look at the feet. So if you look at Australopithecus compared to Homo sapiens, it is very similar, and we find that it has an arch lengthwise as well as widthwise, indicating bipedal locomotion. And so just to highlight how truly transitional these forms are, I want to show you this chart of how creationists classify all these hominid fossils. Because remember, creationists say that these are just simply just apes and that's it, or they're simply just humans and that's it. Of course, creationists are committed to the position that these can't be halfway between ape and human. And so if you look, not only do creationists disagree among themselves, some think they're all apes, some think they're all human, but some creationists even hold two or three different positions throughout time. And so this just underscores how truly transitional these forms are. They truly look like, like monkey men. I can't think of any other way to describe it. And on a creation model, it's really hard to understand why God would bring about these upright walking monkey man-like creatures and then just have them go extinct. And so not only that, we could, we could establish human ancestry with the great apes just based on that alone. We also have many other individual lines of evidence that are extremely compelling, such as the genetic evidence. Um, and Dr. Rana even admits in his book, Who's Adam? He says studies indicate a high degree of genetic similarity, similarity 98% between humans and chimpanzees. And so I want you to look at the picture to the left. So these are the chromosomes of humans, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans arranged chromosome by chromosome side by side. And I want you to notice something. Immediately what jumps out at you is all these light and dark bands seem to match up almost perfectly for every chromosome between humans and apes. And what this means is we have the same regions of DNA in the same order on the same chromosomes between chimps and the great apes. Now, that is very hard to understand from a creation perspective, but actually expected and predicted by an evolutionary model. So let's take a closer look at human chromosome two. Now, here's a golden opportunity for creationism to disprove evolution once and for all. The great apes all have 24 chromosomes. Humans have 23. So it's very unlikely that either we lost one along the way or the great apes all evolved an extra one. Extremely improbable. So what do we find when we look at human chromosome two? Is evolution disproven? Well, chromosomes usually have telomeres at the ends. These are end caps. They only occur at the end. And they have one centromere in the middle, hence centromere. So when we look at human chromosome two, what we see is incredible. And I can't overstate this enough. There are telomeres in the middle where they don't belong in two centromeres. Essentially, our human chromosome two is a fused chimpanzee chromosome made of 2P and 2Q. And if you look at the banding patterns of light and dark, you can see the genes line up almost perfectly. And so it's just unimaginable on how a creation model, we can explain how God would put within us, if we were specially created, 
essentially a fraudulent chimpanzee gnome that strongly indicates common descent, but doesn't really. Um, Infuzz even admits this in a podcast where he says, RTB needs to deal with the compelling evidence that seems to indicate common descent. And he goes on to say they need to provide a rationale for why God would create a world that is designed to look that design that very well may look like it is the product of common descent. Well, it may very well look like it's the product of common descent because it is. And so I can't think of a better example in flashing neon, line, neon lights to scream common descent. Why would God put within us every single cell in your body right now has this fused chromosome, chimpanzee chromosome? I don't understand why he would do it unless he wants to deceive scientists like myself. Let's talk about pseudogenes. So these are broken copies of a gene. And yes, Dr. Ron will point out, some of these do have a function, even critical functions. But at most, about 13% will end up having some type of function. And many don't even do anything. They're just transcribed. But we have about 18,000 of these. And we have all kinds of pseudogenes uh, that are essentially genetic fossils, one of which is CYP21. And so not only do humans and chimps share the same genetic fossil, the same broken gene, not only do we share it in the same place in the genome, on the same chromosome, but we also share the same exact mutation that broke this gene. Now, I can't overstate this enough. I can't, I can't describe to you how powerful and persuasive this is for evidence of common ancestry. It's just completely unintelligible on a creation perspective why we would have the same broken gene in the same place, same mutation on the same chromosome. And just in an act of overkill, we can look at a certain class of genes called olfactory reception genes, smelling genes, and map them onto this proposed evolutionary relationship. Now remember, this evolutionary relationship was proposed well before any genetics. So this isn't post hoc validation. So if we look at all the, all, the, all the primates, we expect them to share some olfactory reception genes, which they do, they share five. If we look at us and the great apes, we should share even more, we share six. If we look at us and our two closest relatives, we should share even more. And if we look at us and chimps, we should share the most, we share 12. Now, this perfectly validates what we predict from evolutionary theory. We share the most amount of pseudogenes with our closest ancestors, or our closest relatives, the chimpanzees. Now, not one olfactory reception pseudogene is out of place. All it would take to destroy all of this is to have one olfactory reception gene that is shared with humans and rhesus monkeys, but not with chimps. But we don't find that. We can do this for many classes of pseudogenes. Similarly, ERVs are endogenous retroviruses. These are essentially genetic fossils. And yes, as Dr. Ronald pointed out, some of them do have a function, uh, but the majority do not. So we have 203,000 of these genetic fossils. They're in every cell of your body. And guess how many we share with chimps? 202,918. And not only that, we share all 99.96% in the same location on the same chromosome, many with identical mutations shared by both chimps and humans. Now, again, this is completely undeniable on a, a creation model that, that it's hard to understand why God would do this. Why would God separately uh, miraculously create chimps and humans to have 203,000 of the same viral fossils in their genome? And again, we can take the class of ERVs, H-E-R-V-K, and map them onto our proposed evolutionary relationship. We see that all the primates share two. If we exclude old world monkeys that we're less related to, we have six. Us and the great apes, we have 11. Us and our two closest relatives, we have 19. And us, and, uh, we should share the most with chimps, which we do. We share 29 in common. Now, again, not one endogenous retrovirus is out of place. This proposed evolutionary relationship that was thought of 150 years ago, 
is validated by every class of pseudogenes, every class of olfactory reception genes. And again, it would only take one ERV in the wrong place to bring this whole tower down, to bring the whole thing down. If we shared one with old world monkeys and not with chimps, then that would destroy all this, but we don't find that. And so let's compare the creation model and the evolutionary model and how satisfactorily it answers all these facts. And so what we find is that the creation model just can't make sense of these facts, while the evolutionary model not only makes great sense of them, but actually predicts these things. So these are nine separate independent lines of evidence all reaching the same conclusion. And so I can't help but think that Fuzz and I are just using different methods. And so I am a PhD level scientist. I've taught evolutionary biology at the university level. I've published in university, and I'm sorry, I've published in evolutionary biology journals. And I've also presented at evolutionary biology conferences. And so I'm a working scientist. What I do is I look at all the data and I try to see the story it's telling me. I try to draw a conclusion from it. The creationist method, on the other hand, is you start with the conclusion and then you try to find facts that fit it. And lest anybody think I'm being uncharitable or unkind, this is what I've gleaned from Dr. Rana's own work. So in his book, Who is Adam? He says, uh, the, the reasons to believe model is based on a biblical description. He said it's cre the creation explanation must be recast in the form of a scientific model. He says humanity's origin must reject any form of evolution that doesn't posit God's involvement. He says it asserts that an attempt to establish evolutionary relationships between hominids will ultimately prove unfruitful. He said their model begins with the identification of all relevant Bible passages and the biblical scenario of humanity's origin and spread is then recast in scientific terms. And so I can't think of anything else, but this is using the creationist method. Uh, and again, this is a problem because he's using circular reasoning. He's invoking theological concepts to defend a theistic model against evidence that doesn't support his model. And you can't, you can't use theological beliefs to explain away scientific evidence. Uh, and so I just want to say, my last thing I want to say is, I do believe in things that science can't speak to. I do believe in the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, but I don't make my science try to say something it can't, and I don't try to make uh, my, my faith say something it can't. And so I want to say, I think this is a worthwhile project that Dr. Rana has, but I think what we need to do is read both books God has written independently, read the book of nature, read the book of scripture, and after that, try to combine the two. Not only is this bad science, this is bad theology. And so when we use an argument from ignorance to prove God, what happens when science finally figures that thing out is the argument for God becomes an argument against God. And God is continually retreating into obscurity and irrelevance. And so that's all I have for you today. Okay. Thank you. And I'll turn it over. I know I'm a little over. Okay. You went, you went, yeah, you went a, went a couple of minutes over time, but you, it, that wasn't too bad. Um, so, well, not if you count the technical uh, difficulties. So you get like a little over 15 on mine. Yeah. So, so um, okay, this is, um, so Rana, do you have a PowerPoint yes. pull up? Okay. Uh, we'll share the screen. And I will add it to the video here. Okay, let's see here. Is it sharing? I I don't see it down there. Mm. I can add it. I can click the button and and pull oh, it up. Here we go. But you got to like pull it up so it shows in the yeah yeah in the Streamyard dash. So there we um, go. There we go. So I'll start the timer if you're ready. Okay. Here we go. Okay. And uh, can you see that? Okay. It's, it should be a black screen. So um, can you see that? Yeah. 
Okay. All right. So um, first of all, uh, again, I just, I want to say thank you, Evan, for uh, organizing this uh, conversation between Aaron and I, and uh, uh, it's encouraging to me uh, to, to be able to hang out with two uh, fine young men who espouse the Christian faith. And, and so I'm, you know, uh, encouraged and honored to, to spend some time with both of you. And of course, the question that we're engaging in today is, how did God create us? And I know that the emphasis of this is going to be on human origins, uh, but I, I feel as if to properly understand uh, my position, I, I need to take a step back and, and present some big picture concepts and big picture ideas that then we can maybe engage more fully um, during the, the rebuttal and the cross-examination. And, you know, the position that I hold to that I'm going to kind of present and defend this evening would be old earth creationism, uh, where the key tenets of this idea is that God directly intervened at key points in life's history, that God's fingerprints are detectable within uh, creation. Dr. Rana, uh, um, Bob Clapper said, uh, and I, I thought this too, we see several slides all at once. Is that just because you haven't opened them yet, or is this a technical difficulty? Uh, it might be a technical difficulty because I thought I was running a PowerPoint. Yeah, I just, I just thought I, I just thought I'd point that out before you got too far in. Okay, so uh, it looks like there's some kind of issue here. Then, um, how I resolved that issue was I unplugged my second monitor. I don't know if that helps or not. I only have one monitor in. And don't uh, worry, I, I, I stopped the timer. This won't, <laughs> this won't. Uh, uh, I'm sorry about this. Um, oh, that's not fair. Keep the timer going. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens. Uh, he's sandbagging. He's cheating. <laughs> so what? Let's see. I'm not quite sure what to do because I thought I shared a window that was the PowerPoint. So let me try. Uh, let's see. Let me just stop the screen share. Let's try it again. And then uh, share slides. No slides to share. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I'm sorry about this. I'm not quite sure what to do. Share screen. Here we go. Uh, okay. So there's the screen. And I want to share the window, which would be this. Is that now showing up? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Okay. Okay, so do All you right, want to so, start over or just pick up where you left off? Yeah, let me let me just start. Yeah, let me just start here. Sorry about that. Again, I apologize. Um, okay. So start so, over, you know, like revert it back to 15? If you want to. I, I'm just going to start at this slide. Uh, basically, real quickly, uh, just the position that I hold to is old earth creationism, uh, which is the idea that God directly intervened at key points in life's history to bring about his creative purposes, that God's fingerprints are detectable uh, uh, in, you know, it, within the biological realm, and that the corollary is that evolutionary processes are insufficient uh, to fully account for uh, life's uh, origin design in history. Now, the old earth creationist perspective uh, accepts some facets of the evolutionary framework, uh, but at the other, on the other hand, uh, expresses skepticism about the capacity of evolutionary mechanisms to account for 
certain key transitions in life's history, such as the origin of life uh, through chemical evolution, and then also uh, the, the capacity of evolutionary mechanisms to generate uh, bona fide innovation or, or bona fide novelty. Uh, and um, this position that I, I hold to is a position that I arrived at um, uh, uh, over the years as I, you know, looked at the, the totality of the evidence, not only uh, the scientific evidence, but also uh, the biblical and theological evidence. And from my perspective, I guess one difference that Aaron and I have is that I'm looking to integrate all the data that I have into a coherent framework versus in, in independently interpreting the two separate records and then uh, bringing them together. I'm looking at how do we integrate them uh, collectively. Now, I didn't um, grow up in a Christian home. I had no Christian influences in my life. I was a uh, an agnostic when I started college and thoroughly embraced an evolutionary perspective on the origin and the history and the design of, of life. But it was in graduate school studying biochemistry that I was deeply impressed with the incredible designs of biochemical systems, the ingenuity of these designs, and also recognized that uh, chemical evolutionary mechanisms were insufficient uh, to, to, to generate biochemical systems and hence the origin of life. And it was at that point I had the conviction that there had to be a mind that was behind every, everything, that there was a creator that must have been responsible for at minimum the, the origin and the fundamental design of living systems. Uh, now, at that particular point in my life, I uh, would have argued that once God brought uh, you know, life into existence, that evolutionary processes could, have, could account for uh, the history of life on Earth. But it was over, over the years, as I began to more deeply study, again, questions relating to origins, that I began to uh, identify what I thought to be uh, in a, the inability of evolutionary mechanisms not only to account for the origin of life, but to, for, to account for key transitions in life's history, which I'll delineate in just a minute. And more recently, have come to appreciate the very real challenges evolutionary mechanisms have for accounting for the origin of, of biological novelty. Now, in, a, in, or, in order to, again, hold to this position, uh, in light of, again, modern day science, we have to recognize that uh, the role that methodological naturalism influences the way that we think about questions relating to origins. And, and I think at the end of the day, the conversation that Aaron and I need to have uh, that really, I think, separates us isn't so much the evidence, but it's really the philosophical framework we bring to, bring to the table as we view that evidence. And of course, today in contemporary science, methodological naturalism is the prevailing philosophical framework, which basically argues that um, the only way we can interpret features within the universe, including questions relating to biological origins, is in a materialistic mechanistic sense. Any other explanation a priori is excluded from, from the conversation. And yet I would argue that this particular approach to origins uh, is, is con uh, artificially constraining and very well may keep us from recognizing uh, a creator's involvement 
And so I hold to a position of soft methodological naturalism. I don't reject methodological naturalism outright, but I think that it does have limitations and we want to be cautious about how methodological naturalism influences how we think about, about phenomena in biology, particularly with respect to origins. And I'll point out that as Christians, we have to abandon methodological naturalism if we're going to take the pillar of the Christian faith seriously, which is the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And you could argue that the resurrection is a theological idea or that we can make a, a historical argument for the resurrection, which I fully agree that we can. But if we're thinking about the resurrection in scientific terms, and the resurrection is, in a, in a sense, under the domain of science, we would have to be, conclude, if we adopt a methodological naturalistic framework, that the resurrection is impossible, because we know scientifically that dead people don't uh, come back to life. As my friend Bernard Palmer, who's a surgeon in the UK, says, when people are properly dead, they don't come back to life. Uh, that we understand mechanistically why that is the case. And so if we're going to be consistent and, and apply methodological naturalism to questions that are under the purview of science, we would have to, to reject the resurrection. Uh, you know, because again, this is a, a question that has, bear, has scientific bearing or science has bearing on this question. But yet we don't as Christians we suspend methodological naturalism when it comes to the resurrection, seeing this as a place where God is intervening within nature to bring about purposes that, again, are outside of the natural normative mechanisms of biology. And so I would argue that if that's the case when it comes to the resurrection, then to be consistent, we need to be, at least be willing to think about the possibility that God could intervene uh, to bring about creative purposes when it comes to the question of origins. Now, uh, I would also argue that viewing biology from a design framework is legitimate because we see uh, compelling evidence for design, uh, particularly at the biochemical level, which is what I barter in as a biochemist, but I think it also extends uh, to the biological level, to the organismal level. And in a number of books, I've actually presented different types of arguments, again, focusing primarily on biochemical systems that indicate, again, that, that, that viewing biology from a design framework is a robust scientific ar uh, position. In fact, the arguments that I make in these books follow after the type of reasoning that archaeologists or that uh, SETI researchers would use to argue that we can detect in evidence for intelligent agency within nature. Uh, I also uh, would argue that, again, in conjunction with this evidence for design, there are also key transitions in life's history that really defy uh, evolutionary explanations. And this is not just simply the origin of life, but also the origin of eukaryotic cells, the origin of body plans, and I would even argue the origin of human exceptionalism. Uh, and I'm not going to get into details here. I don't have the time, but I, I've got a couple of uh, quotes here that I'm not going to read that come from experts that are working in these areas as evolutionary biologists that are highlighting the fact that when it comes to, again, trying to account for the origin of, in this case, of eukaryotic cells, that, that superficially 
the 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 models that are presented are compelling, but when we roll up back our sleeves and we we really you know dig into the specifics, particularly at a biochemical level, we begin to see some very glaring problems. The same is true when it comes to the origin of of body plans and people like Doug Irwin and Jim Valentine in their book on the Cambrian explosion acknowledge that we don't have the framework in place with current evolutionary theory to really have an adequate explanation for the origin of body plans and, and the, the concomitant event in life's history known as the Cambrian explosion. When it comes to the origin of language, which I, I think is emblematic of, uh, of our exceptional nature as human beings, again, we see that the evolutionary framework struggles to produce a valid model for the origin of, of language. Uh, and, and so again, you know, if we are operating from a framework of methodological naturalism, we would probably acknowledge these issues. Again, many uh, biologists will acknowledge these issues, but they'll argue that these are just simply, you know, uh, deep mysteries or maybe impenetrable scientific mysteries, or these are outstanding problems that we need to solve. But if you are willing to relax the requirements of methodological naturalism, that opens up the possibility that, again, you might be able to produce uh, an alternative explanation. Now, you know, that leads us to this question, then what about all the evidence for evolution? Because you could, again, argue that in, in light of, again, the, 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 these problems, we still have this compelling evidence for evolution. And I thought Aaron did a really good job of laying out some of the different lines of evidence and to me, the, the, the lines of evidence really collapse into two broad categories, uh, homologies and uh, the fossil record. And uh, I would argue that, again, while homologies, again, are, are, are intertwined with evolutionary theory today, prior to Darwin, uh, scientists were well aware of homologous structures, homologous biological systems. And in fact, uh, Sir Richard Owen, who not only elaborated, played a key role in elaborating the concept of homology, actually produced a theoretical framework to interpret homologies from a design uh, standpoint, from a standpoint that was teleological in orientation, where he proposed this idea of a vertebrate archetype uh, that existed in the mind of the first cause that was then functionally manifested in the created order. And in fact, Owen marveled at the fact that uh, that the creator developed an archetype that was robust enough that it could be varied in such a way to create structures that had a wide range of different types of functional capabilities. And, and so I would argue that the, the shared features that we see could be understood as evidence for common design, not common descent. And in fact, Darwin drew heavily upon Owen's work and evolutionized Owen's idea of the archetype uh, converting the archetype into a hypothetical ancestor. Now, uh, here's another point to bring up, again, a philosophical consideration. And this is the idea of uh, underdetermination, that in science, uh, you can have uh, that, that theories are underdetermined by data, meaning that you can have two radically distinct theories that could actually make sense of the same set of data that could appropriate and accommodate and, and find support from the same set of data. 
And I believe that this is the case for common design and common descent. I would argue that they are, in effect, equivalent theories. And in fact, at RTB, one of the projects we're working on is developing an RTB genomics model. And I'm not going to get into uh, specifics because, I, again, I don't have time. And so I'm just going to simply blow through this real quickly by arguing that we believe we can account for uh, comparative genomics by viewing genomes as, the, as being designed, where once that design is instantiated, uh, it is, um, again, operated on uh, or it's subject to mutational changes that take place and that genomes are a combination of these two features. Uh, and I think, again, this can account for comparative genomics. I'm going to save this point in, uh, to the cross-examination or to the rebuttal uh, because this is a point that Aaron raised. Why would a creator employ the same designs? But again, because of time constraints, I'm going to uh, just simply move on to the fossil record. And again, uh, we could appeal to the way, to the ideas prior to Darwin to develop a, a framework to interpret the fossil record, where following in the footsteps of people like Louis Agassiz, uh, we could view the fossil record as a progressive series of creation events. Uh, and in fact, uh, we view uh, the evolution of automobiles in that way, where we see automobiles as obviously designed systems, uh, and, and yet we see an evolutionary trajectory for automobiles that again reflects a design history where we see shared features, we see nested hierarchical structures when it comes to different elements of, of, of automotive design. And so I would argue that when we're looking at the fossil record and we're looking at features like nested hierarchies, uh, we could actually interpret them again uh, from the framework of common design. You know, what about the, the transitional fossils, the, 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 the intermediate forms that we see? Well, these, again, are mosaic designs, uh, and uh, we are familiar with the fact that as designers, we produce mosaics all the time. Uh, we all have smartphones today, and smartphones are, uh, are a mosaic design. Uh, prior to the advent of smartphones, people had digital cameras, they had iPods, they had cell phones, you, you had internet devices, and what you see in a smartphone is a mosaic of designs bringing these all together. And so when we look at creatures like the Australopithecines or the Havilines, uh, we could argue that these are mosaic uh, organisms that have uh, capabilities of, in the case of Australopithecines, living in an open savanna, but also in a woodland environment, in a mixed environment where their attributes make them ideally suited for that mixed uh, uh, environmental setting. And so my point is that common design and common descent are in fact equivalent models, given the idea of the underdetermination problem, and again, the constraints of methodological naturalism. And, and so I think that, that, uh, uh, it, that, again, if somebody has the conviction that, uh, uh, that God is intervening to bring about creative purposes, that, that views um, the human origins from, a, again, a, a perspective where God has intervened to bring about the creation of human beings, that you could see that is uh, a robust scientific idea uh, from a common design framework. That, 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 that the, again, the difference, I think, between Aaron and I probably is more philosophical 
in terms of the influence of methodological naturalism on the way that we interpret science. If we adhere to methodological naturalism, I would agree that, that the evidence is very strong in favor of, of human evolution. But if we, again, relax those constraints, I think common descent is an equivalent competing model. So anyway, I'll go ahead and stop there. And uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, we can yeah. move on to the next a little stage. bit over time too, but since I, since I let Aaron go for an extra couple of minutes, I let you go for an extra couple of minutes to even it all out. Okay. So, both rule breakers. So, so um, <laughs> by the way, don't forget to like the video and subscribe and turn on notifications so that you'll be notified whenever I have new content coming out. And I want to remind people in the uh, live chat that at some, that near the end of this debate, we will have a Q&A portion. Um, so leave your questions in the live chat for our debaters. For uh, You can leave them now if you want to, and I will get to them during that time period. So now let's get to the rebuttals. Uh, each of you have seven minutes or less, um, depending on you know how much you have to say. And uh, I will let Aaron go now. All right. So I want to thank Fuzz again for participating in this dialogue. I think it's super great that, you know, we're both two Christians trying to figure out how do we deal uh, with this evidence. Uh, and so that being said, you know, I feel like a lot of the arguments coming from your side are negative arguments. That is, uh, you know, we can't explain this thing. So we can't under explain how the first living thing came about, which is true. It's an open secret in science. We don't have that great of a clue of how the first living thing came about. We don't know. Um, you know, exactly how the, uh, the hominids are related to each other within that transitional period. We don't know that exactly. Um, but what I hear is a lot of negative arguments. And I don't see a lot of positive arguments where you're actually making, uh, you know, your own case. I mean, it's easy to tear down, but it's not so easy to build. Uh, and this is the problem with the Kitts Miller versus Dover case. Uh, you remember, I think in 2007, the teaching of intelligent design in school is that the judge eventually said, listen, you don't have any peer reviewed published stuff. You don't have any of your own uh, testable hypotheses that can be falsified or verified on this. Uh, and so I do think that there is a big philosophical difference. Uh, I think that, sorry about that. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're using the wrong tool for the job. I think when, when Fuzz is trying to do this. So science is great. I love science. Science can tell us about all kinds of empirical things. It can tell us about smartphones. It can tell us about, you know, how to, how to make planes. It can do heart transplants. But science can't answer the most fundamental questions we really want to know. Is there a God? Is there an afterlife? Uh, is there a such thing as objective morality? And so those things are just simply outside the scope of science. Science just can't say yes or no to them. Science just can't speak to those issues. They're not empirical. Um, and I think the big categorical mistake here is try to take faith and try to make it prove science. I think that's a very big mistake. It's bad science and it's bad theology. Um, and so I want to say about, you know, the, the resurrection. Yes, I am an evangelical Christian Orthodox with a lowercase o. I believe in the bodily resurrection, and I understand that's impossible on a scientific uh, worldview. But as Christians, we have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit that testifies the central truths of the gospel. One of those being that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised on the third day. Now, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit does not testify to things about how did God create millions and billions of years ago? That is not something the Holy Spirit testifies. So I would say the way that we know that Jesus was resurrected is not through 
uh, you know, arguments and evidence or scientific evidence or historical evidence. It's primarily, it's through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I accept it. I accept it on faith. I don't try to make science try to prove the resurrection or, you know, somehow find how it could be plausible in a biblical worldview for a dead man to come back to life. I don't try to make my science say things that can't. I love science, but I believe so many things that can't be proven by science, and I'm okay with that. I believe a lot of things based purely on faith. And so I want to touch on something you talked about, which is detecting design. And so again, detecting design is something that is not within the scientific process. And you may say, well, what about archaeology? What about SETI? Well, first of all, SETI has publicly disavowed any kind of intelligent design or creationism. They're making it clear that that's not what they're doing. They don't support that. And furthermore, archaeology, we already have the benefit of knowing for a fact that there's other humans and that humans do create things. And we've seen with our own eyes and made the things that humans make. And so this is a false analogy. It's a false equivalent. When we talk about a supernatural being who nobody's ever seen, we don't have any empirical evidence for, we can't definitively say that something is designed by that entity because we, we, we don't have any definitive evidence. We don't know what that would look like. And again, if you do detect design, this is just another argument from ignorance. You're saying, well, you know, this looks designed. You know, I don't understand how biology could have possibly come up with that. And again, it's, you used to say that about how uh, babies develop in the womb. People used to say that about how flowers, uh, you know, open up. But now science has explained those things. And so theologically, it, it really disturbs me because we're really putting ourselves in a precarious position where we're making these theological arguments that are very dangerous, that make God the premise in an argument, that once that argument is falsified, it becomes an argument against God. Um, and so I also want to touch on the evolution of automobiles. Again, this is another false analogy. And so automobiles don't reproduce. They don't reproduce on their own. They, do, they don't have variation. They don't have inheritance. So this is not akin to biological systems at all. And also you say that uh, common design and common descent are equivalent models. And as a working scientist, I find that hard to believe because research shows that fewer than 1% of working scientists at the PhD level accept any form of intelligent design or creationism. 99% of working scientists accept mainstream evolutionary theory. And you may say, well, it's because most scientists are atheists and they don't want you know, a divine foot in the door. But the Academy of Sciences, 50% of their members claim belief in God or higher power. So roughly half of scientists are religious. So those you can say it's a you know it's it's motivated by that. Um, I also want to touch on a few things. You talk about the rate of evolution, and so in a few decades, soapberry bugs have increased their beak length twenty five percent. So if we were to allow them to reproduce for another five thousand years, ten thousand generations, they'd have an eighteen hundred mile long beak. They could spear a fruit the size of a moon, and so the rate of change that we actually observe in nature today could turn a mouse into an elephant in 10,000 years. So natural selection is a very weak force, but over long lengths of time, it has huge cumulative power. And this distinction between macroevolution and microevolution, that is evolution at or above the species level and below, is an artificial distinction. They are qualitatively the same, but quantitatively different. It's like if I would say to you that millimeters could never add up to kilometers. Of course they can. And it's like saying that I could never walk from here to the mailbox, or I can walk from here to the mailbox, but I could never walk from here to Los Angeles. Of course I can. We're just, it's qualitatively the same thing, quantitatively different. And also the Cambrian explosion. I might touch on this later, but if we look at all the phyla of fungi after the Cambrian, all the phyla of plants after the Cambrian, seven phyla of fungi, 12 phyla of plants, 
uh, at least 10 phyla of animals after the Cambrian and before the Cambrian. We have two to six phyla before that. And the Cambrian was 20 to 25 million years long. It wasn't as though God just dipped his hand in it at you know, midnight, 542 million years ago. We just have oodles of critters that we've never seen before. There was at least life for 3.5 billion years prior to that and complex life up to six foot long bilateral and radial symmetry for 40 million years prior to that. So again, just to tie a ball on this, I know I'm out of time, is that what I see is a lot of negative evidence. I see, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? But I don't see a lot of positive evidence. Okay, you stayed within the time limit. Yay! For once. <laughs> okay, Dr. Anna, now it is your turn. Okay, well, um, yeah, uh, first of all, uh, what I want to do is just uh, point out that I, I uh, think the idea that I'm presenting negative evidence, I think, is, is not a, a fair assessment of our position, uh, because uh, reasons to believe we actually are approaching again, this with a creation or, you know, the question of origins with a creation model approach where we are deriving inspiration from scripture to construct our model. Uh, but then we are basically uh, showing that the evidence uh, from science supports the model. So it's actually presenting a, a model, you know, that's a, a historical descriptive model uh, for the question of, of origins, not only the universe, but the origin and of life and the history of life. And uh, we are showing how our model could be supported and how it could be falsified from discovery or, or for, uh, uh, falsified from based on you know, new observations and new discoveries. So it actually is, a, I think, a, a positive presentation of our position, not just simply uh, tearing things down, uh, you know, as you're, you're pointing out. And part of the reason I, you know, did discuss the fact that Again, I think there are places where the evolutionary paradigm uh, is today, given current theory, in you know, comes up short in terms of explaining key transitions, is part of the, the process of, of justifying why you would appeal to design. That if there you are uh, having, again, issues with a particular theory, if a particular theory is coming up short, it opens up the possibility that there may be alternative explanations. It's doesn't justify those alternative explanations, but it opens up that framework. And the, you know, the idea that we, we can't detect design scientifically, again, I think is, is an unfair assessment. And, and I, would, I would look to SETI because again, SETI, uh, and I agree, they've you know, discon, uh, disavowed themselves from ID and, and creationism, but they still are engaged in design detection. That, that's the heart and the soul of SETI, where the claim is that we can characterize, uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation from a distant object and tell if that radiation is emanating from an advanced civilization or if it's emanating from some kind of natural source. Uh, and so that's actually, again, design detection. And we don't know that the, the alien civilization exists. We don't know anything about the alien civilization. Uh, we don't know what their motives are. Uh, and yet, when you look at the work of, of, of again, SETI advocates, um, uh, you know, they are essentially arguing that not only can, again, we, you know, detect uh, evidence for intelligent agency, but we can even tell you something about the capabilities uh, of those, uh, of that advanced civilization or that purported advanced civilization. 
And so the methodology that they're using, which is, does a feature in nature display artificiality? Can you rule out natural process mechanisms? And then what does it take to try to uh, envision how that system could actually come into existence? How could you reconstruct that capability uh, is essentially what we're doing with our design argument, which is, again, pointing out that biological systems have the, the appearance of design, they display artificiality, that natural process mechanisms can't account for them, and that, uh, you know, again, when we go into the lab and we try to, to create artificial cells uh, through the work of, in synthetic biology and prebiotic chemistry, we recognize that the integral role intelligent agency is playing. So this is essentially a rigorous scientific case that is no different than the case that SETI would make uh, that, again, can not only tell us intel intelligent agency was responsible, but also can give us some clue as to the motivation and the capability of that intelligent agent. And so, you know, I think what we're presenting here is actually a positive case uh, for our position uh, that um, is not necessarily uh, negatively oriented or simply looking to, to tear down evolutionary theory. Uh, you know, an, another uh, point that came up is why would God create, uh, you know, a world where it appears as if creatures, again, uh, uh, you know, have a, a, a have a share common ancestry? Why would God create a world that appears as if it's the, the product of common descent? And again, you know, our argument is that these shared features reflect common design. But the question is, why would God create that way? And if you actually think about it, if it, because of homologies that we see at the biochemical level, at the genetic level, at the anatomical and physiological level, that biology is actually possible as a robust scientific discipline. Uh, if, if God created in any other way, we would have a, a world populated with organisms in which what we study and learn with respect to one organism would only apply to that organism. It wouldn't have general applicability. And so, you know, to me, it's, it's provocative that we can study uh, the biochemistry of E. coli and from that actually extract insight to tell us about human biochemistry, you know, or that we can study the, 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 the biochemistry of yeast and, and the genetics of yeast and from that gain insight that we can apply to to human biochemistry, human genetics. And so homologies allow, again, biology to be discoverable. And so by designing biology in that way, you could argue that God has designed biology to be discoverable. And you know, to me, you could call this an anthropic coincidence because even if you are viewing life's history in evolutionary terms, it is a bit eerie, I think, to think that even those mechanisms that produce again, this evolutionary history and this common descent actually do it in such a way that, again, biology is possible as a, as a discipline because of these shared features. It's not to say that you couldn't have any study of the living realm with, you know, apart from homology. It's just that homology makes biology unbelievably uh, tractable. It makes it biology unbelievably intelligible. And that, to me, is, is provocative, regardless of how you view, you know, the question of origins. Um, let's see, um, I, I, oh, uh, with respect to the, 
the argument that you're presenting regarding pseudogenes and endogenous retroviruses. I, I've written extensively on these two areas uh, uh, in the updated uh, edition of Who Was Adam, which was published in 2015. We expanded the section on our response to junk DNA. And then since that point in time, I've written a number of articles. But the what we're learning about pseudogenes is that there is a a, a, a framework known as the competitive endogenous uh, RNA hypothesis that actually gives uh, a, a very um, elegant explanation for why pseudogenes are found in genomes. Yeah, okay, I, I'll just stop there. Uh, and, and why pseudogenes look like healthy versions of the genes. And, and again, and, and the same thing with endogenous retroviruses is that we're learning that these are playing a, a critical role in the innate immune system. And that insight, both of those insights, I think, revolutionizes uh, the response to the to the so-called junk DNA challenge. Okay. Okay. So, um, guys, I see that in the live chat, you've left several questions, and uh, I will get to those. I'm not, I just want to make sure that you know that I'm not ignoring you. Um, I will bring these up on screen for our debaters one by one uh, during, we're, we're going to get them all done out you know, in one single section. Uh, after this next section, which is the cross-examination, which is uh, which is going to last about 20 minutes. So I'll start the timer. Uh, but if you do have questions, you don't have to wait until you don't have to wait until the Q and A portion. Just leave them in there, and uh, I'll get I'll get to them. So let's start the cross-examination. How does how's this going to work? Yeah. Um, I guess I guess Aaron can go first. Okay, yeah, that'll work. So, I do have a question for Dr. Rana. Um, so, you had said in your book, "Who Is Adam?" You say, uh, "What about the genetic material without a known function, such as the glow unitary pseudogenes that humans and chimps share?" Currently, reasons to believe the reasons to believe model offers no explanation for this feature. But still, you still hold to the reasons to believe model. And so it doesn't seem to me like your model is actually scientific because it doesn't seem like there's anything that could falsify your model and cause you to reject your model. Um, as I read through your book, who is Adam, it seems like every new piece of information is just, oh, well, you know, we can incorporate that into the reasons to believe origins model as well. Oh, there's new evidence. We can incorporate that as well. Well, it's pretty easy to vindicate your model when you're the one who creates, designs, and judges your model. And so I want to know from you, I mean, is there any evidence that would cause you to falsify the reasons to believe origin model and for you to throw up your hands and say, okay, well, I guess common ancestry is true. Yeah. And, and, and let me respond to that by, uh, by bringing up this point. And, and that is that if you adopt the framework of methodological naturalism, then it's impossible to falsify human evolution. Uh, and the reason I say that is because in the framework of methodological naturalism, the only explanation you have for human origins would be some type of materialistic mechanistic explanation, which is essentially forces you to, to adopt exclusively some type of evolutionary model. And so you might, you know, you might argue that 
you know, again, there, there could be different versions of, of human evolution, maybe different mechanisms that could account for human evolution, but you're forced into some kind of evolutionary framework. And so the, the question then becomes, how would you falsify human evolution in a framework of methodological naturalism? So I don't think that your complaint is unique to the RTB creation model. I think it's actually endemic to all aspects of the evolutionary paradigm. It, it is, in effect, unfalsifiable. Uh, now, And, of course, evolutionary biologists are constantly taking into account new discoveries and they're modifying models. I mean, uh, if you look at, again, the hominin fossil record, it's not uncommon for new fossil finds, uh, whether they re represent a new hominin species or whether they are a new specimen that is interpreted as, as a member of an, a pre-existing species or a, pre, uh, or a pre-existingly known species, um, you know, you oftentimes see everybody going out and redrawing their evolutionary trees, accommodating that new fossil specimen. That That's essentially the nature of, of science is you take new discoveries and you engage those new discoveries. Does your model accommodate them or uh, do you need to revise the model? And so we have revised our, our model and we have, you know, interacted with new discoveries. Uh, but that's the hallmark of, of, a, of a scientific model. That's the hallmark of, 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 of trying to produce an integrated model. Uh, as new insights come, you know, you, you take those insights and you, you work with them within the framework of your model. So I don't see that we're doing anything um, that would be uh, contrary to what I see happening in, in any kind of scientific arena. Uh, uh, including, you know, well, okay. And then, and then with regard to the GLO pseudogenes in the first edition of, of who was Adam, which was published in 2005, we acknowledge there, there's not a good explanation in the second edition in 2015, there was the, 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 the explanation for the GLO pseudogene would be encompassed in the, in the discovery of the competitive endogenous RNA hypothesis which is gaining uh, growing support from the experimental data, uh, which essentially explains why pseudogenes are present, at least why duplicated pseudogenes that are expressed are present within genomes is because they're taking part in this, in this RNA network uh, that uh, uh, impacts uh, gene regulation uh, or endogenous retroviruses in 2005, we didn't have an explanation uh, that was robust. And today, after it, you know, after uh, in the last um, couple of years, there's been a flood of discoveries showing that endogenous retroviruses are playing a role in innate immunity. They they play a role as a in 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 uh, as an anti-cancer mechanism, if you will, um, and they but serve they can also other cause roles. cancer too. They're identified right. yeah. with all kinds of different cancers. So right. they also have the but, potential but, to be very lethal and kill. So, I mean, this right, idea my, that. Yeah, yeah. But my, my point is. Well, if is I that, can respond, because you've raised, you've raised two issues. So if I could respond real quick. So first of all, you know, uh, that when you say that, you know, what you're doing is no different than science. It's, I mean, it's absolutely different from science. It's science. I mean, I publish papers. I do experiments. And what I don't do is I start off saying, well, whatever the outcome of the experiment, this could never be the case. I don't define the outcome before I even start the experiment, look at the evidence. 
But according to your own book, that's what you do. I mean, you say on page 44 of your book, Who is Adam? Reasons to believe model, I'm sorry, and page 44, you say, reasons to believe model asserts that attempts to establish evolutionary relationships among the hominids in the fossil record and to identify the evolutionary pathways to modern humans will ultimately prove unfruitful. And so from the outset, you've already said that there's no possible way that we're going to admit that these hominids are connected to humans. And so obviously that's not how science works. Believe me, yeah, I've run but, a lot of experiments and I get a but, lot of results that I don't like and I can't publish, but that's part of the process. You have to be willing to give up your own pet idea about it. Yeah, but but Aaron, you're 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 mistaking what those statements are about. Those statements are not essentially positions that we are locked in to, but rather those those statements essentially reflect predictions that flow out of the model. That's what those statements are intended to do. Is that that these are predictions? These are not control beliefs that then influence how we interpret the data or whether we are willing to accept or reject the results. Uh, for example, in the first edition of Who Was Adam, we basically made the, the, the prediction that humans and Neanderthals should not, would not interbreed. That was our prediction, right? And uh, the evidence for human Neanderthal interbreeding is, is compelling. And so in the updated edition, we acknowledged that. And then we said this was a failed prediction and that we need to basically now revise our model. Can we revise our model in light of that discovery? and still retain the core elements of it, you know, uh, and so we responded to the scientific data, you know, wh whether we liked it or not, my preference would be that humans and Neanderthals didn't interbreed, but this is what the data says. So, so you're mistaking those statements as being, again, control beliefs that we're not going to give up no matter what, from essentially predictions that essentially we felt flowed out of, out of our particular model. Where again we revise the model in light of, of in light of new discoveries, and with regard well, to the GLO my original series, question. Well, but in, again, is there anything regard, is 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 the reason to believe model open to the idea of uh, human sharing common ancestry with every living thing? Is that a possible outcome of your model, or is that excluded a priori? Uh, let's put it this way: it the it the model. I don't know. Well, just a straight answer. I mean, is the reason to believe model open to common ancestry of humans or not? Uh, the model is in, is not a, a a theistic evolutionary model. It is a so it's it not. A, the, yes, the model is not, but it doesn't mean that I'm well, not. Well, it's open from to the outset it. you've already defined that human common ancestry can't be the case. So, okay. what are you going to find when you start off with the assumption so, that human ancestry can't be the case? you're going to find human ancestry can't be the case because that's the conclusion you've started with. I mean, okay, that's my but, whole point is you're starting with a conclusion based on your specific interpretation of the Bible and you're looking for evidence to shoehorn into that conclusion. You said yourself, yeah, your reason to believe origins model is not open to common ancestry of humans and apes. My model is open to anything. That, but it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that there couldn't be a, 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 a different version of the RTB model that would be open to common ancestry. So it's not that it would just simply be a different model. And by the way, I could argue, is, is, is your model open to the idea of God intervening to bring about, about the origin of humanity? I mean, is your model open to uh, viewing evolutionary history or life's history in teleological terms? I mean, Strictly on science, no. I mean, okay, it's a well, faith-based proposition that I believe. Yeah. I do believe 
God had a purpose for creation. I do believe right, God sustains but, all life. I do believe this was his plan, but my right. science can't prove that. I can't use my science. I can't press it in the service for something it's not built and meant to do. I think that's the fundamental bedrock difference between the two of us. I think you're still clinging to this idea that you can try to use science for something it's not meant to do to try to provide some kind of tangible proof for people who so badly want some kind of proof that the Bible is true. And I just don't think that that dog's going to hunt. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, but I think that's but a again, bedrock but, difference between the two of us. But, you're, but you, what, what I think you're doing here, Aaron, is you're conflating, uh, you're conflating uh, methodological naturalism with the scientific method. So, you know, this, to me, the scientific method is the core of science. You can have a robust scientific enterprise without methodological naturalism being the, the framework that influences how we, you know, uh, how we think about scientific investigation. And, and so, you know, the scientific method, again, doesn't demand methodological naturalism as the, as the framework that's in place. This is this to me again is an, an artificial restriction on the scientific, on the scientific method, and, and so you know I would artificial actually restriction argue, necessity. I mean the scientific um, it doesn't work if we it, don't put limits on it like that. I mean to just say well, you know well God did it and you know well that's the end of it. You know I mean that's that's not science. I mean uh, it could be like know. God could have created the first it, living thing. God could have intervened nine million times to create all the species, but that's not ever a verifiable hypothesis or a falsifiable one. Scientifically, it's meaningless. I may believe those things as a Christian by faith, but the thing is science just isn't the tool to tell us whether that's the case or not. That would be your faith in your particular in, uh, in interpretation of Genesis. Just like your ERVs, again, with the ERVs, it's another negative argument. It's another argument from ignorance. You're saying, well, some pseudogenes are found to have function, so let's just wait and eventually all of them will be found to have function. The pseudogenes, the broken genes are put there by the creator for a purpose. Same with the endogenous retroviruses. You find one or two endogenous retroviruses that have some kind of beneficial property. And, you know, no matter the rest are either inactive, don't do anything or cause cancer. And you say, well, let's just wait long enough. And, you know, eventually we'll find that they all have some kind of purpose and that this is God's grand design that he put, you know, dead genetic fossils in us from billions of years that we share exactly the same ones with the great apes. I mean, again, this is just an argument for ignorance. I feel like you're trying to dance around the fact that you're using gaps in our scientific knowledge and exploiting those to make theological arguments like the Cambrian explosion. You're doubting, oh, well, the Cambrian explosion, we see all these forms coming about. Scientists don't understand uh, the origin of life. I mean, I have your book right here. How did the first living cell come about? Scientists aren't really sure. What about the hominids? They argue, is this this species? Is this this species? Yes, there are many unresolved things in science. And I'm not even saying that science is going to resolve all those eventually. But what I'm saying is what is a very bad thing to do scientifically and worse theologically is then to just kind of insert God and claim victory. Because if science is any guide, we're going to figure out how the first living thing got started in, in a naturalistic framework. I'm sure God was involved, but obviously empirical evidence won't tell us anything about that. Science is going to figure out the fossil record when it comes to hominids and who's related to who. And then the argument that you've built, an argument for God based on that evidence, is then going to become an argument against God. And so I agree with you on probably almost every Christian position you hold. But I think the fundamental thing is that I see the kind of thing you do is theologically dangerous. And I see it setting us up Christian, us up, our, us Christians up for failure. I think this is a very imprudent and dangerous move to try to use, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to try to use God as a stopgap in our knowledge, to find God in the unknown instead of finding God in the known. Well, you know, it, Aaron, you know, what is it? 
would it be would it be correct to say that the case for evolution is a cumulative case that it's not built on one or two fossils or one or two pieces of genetic evidence but it's like when you lay all of the evidence out on the table it's kind of like putting pieces of a puzzle together and would you say that like the different problems that um young and old earth creationists have uh are kind of kind of analogous to like bible difficulties like you can make a case for the reliability of the new testament you may not know what to do with the weird saints that come out of math that come out of the tomb in matthew's account but that's not really going to make you doubt that jesus rose from the dead would that be a fair assessment yeah yeah i think that's fair um you know and that's i think that's the the whole I think the whole idea of trying to use the Bible to come up with a model for human origins is just fundamentally flawed and misconceived because of what you just pointed out, Evan. Because, you know, if we're looking 500 years ago to understand astronomy through the lens of the Bible, we're probably going to conclude that the sun moves around the earth and the earth doesn't move. And so it's going to depend on your interpretation of scripture. And how are we to say which interpretation is correct? Is the day age? Is the gap? Is the literal young earth creationist? Is the so if you start off with your own particular interpretation of the Bible and then build a model on that, that is a much worse way to obtain truth than just looking at the evidence itself. And then from all the evidence, as objectively as you can, trying to draw out a conclusion from it, trying to listen to all the evidence and hear what it's telling you to draw a conclusion from that, rather than, well, this is my interpretation. Let's see if I can prove it using the evidence or at least some of the evidence like a salad bar. Right. And, and let me respond to this point, you know, because, you know, first of all, when you look at Scripture, it's very clear that Scripture teaches that God has revealed himself to us through the record of nature, right? And, and, and it's not only evidence for God's fingerprints that are evident in, in creation, but we can even ascertain aspects of God's character and God's nature according to Scripture from the, the, the features of nature. This is, this, this is called general revelation. And so if science is the study of the record of nature, then from a Christian perspective, it's not unreasonable to think that we should see evidence for God's fingerprints within, within the record of nature. That, that's, uh, that is, you know, again, an un, uh, I think a sound, you know, position to hold in light of the idea of general revelation. And if we go to uh, the idea of the, you know, the resurrection and the atonement that's connected to Christ's death on the cross, from the writings of the Apostle Paul, it's it's very clear that he viewed there being a historical Adam, that that was the you know the the progenitor of all humanity, and that's found in the creation accounts in in Genesis one and Genesis or it's implied in Genesis one, it's in Genesis two and Genesis three, and so it's not unreasonable to think that there was a historical Adam that scripture seems to teach was the sole progenitor of humanity. And so, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you uh, argue, uh, if you, if you're not willing to, 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 to look to how do you defend that view, you know, it's, you know, I think you, you, you are capitulating uh, a foundational idea to the gospel itself. And so I don't, and so science is the, the, the domain of human knowledge that you want to look at evaluating scripture in light of. It's no different than somebody uh, making a, a his, historical case for the resurrection. 
I don't I'd think like that's to, misguided. And I would right? like to bring up also that there is like a third alternative that some uh, I you know I'm going to tip my hand. I consider myself an evolutionary creationist, but I think I and I also affirm soft methodological naturalism. But I would tend to agree with Aaron uh, about where the evidence points. Um, I would agree with a, a theistic evolutionist like Francis Collins, who thinks that the origin of the universe at the Big Bang and the cosmic fine tuning. I would say the what I call the local fine tuning. Uh, Hugh Ross talks about this in, in Improbable Planet. I think these are very good arguments for God's existence, and these are detectable. Uh, you know, his fingerprints are detectable in the creation. Maybe they're not detectable in the biological realm, but they are in the realm of physics. And but, but why would they be detectable? And, even, and maybe even, uh, and also, I, I I like the argument from beauty. So the the beauty of nature can be. Um, so it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, biological complexity points to God, um, or he's just totally undetectable. It could be, well, maybe it's not, you know, maybe if you're only looking over here, you won't see it. But if you look at all but, of nature, but, but, you'll but see but it. But why would, why would God be re clearly revealed in cosmology, but not be clearly revealed in biology? That creates that's, that's a big that's, difference. That seems incoherent to me. Well, it's not. There's a huge difference because the argument from fine-tuning, at least as it's presented by people like William Lane Craig, the argument from fine-tuning is a philosophical argument, but it has a, a scientific premise in it. So it's a syllogism. It's a, it's a philosophical argument, but it has a scientific uh, component that supports one of the premises. And here's the thing. If you have a universe, like let's say hypothetically the universe was past eternal you wouldn't need a god and you could have evolution proceeding without any designer but the thing is you can't have a universe come into existence which modern cosmology affirms without having something causally prior something that was uncaused unembodied incredibly powerful and so i think it's a false analogy it's apples and oranges comparing fine-tuning in the universe and we are design in the universe you want to say in the fine-tuning and design and biological systems are completely two different things but but you know but uh, but the design argument is a philosophical argument that's in, that's uh, informed by scientific insight. It's no different than the cosmological argument or the the design argument from fine tuning. And and my question is, how would I, de you know, detect God's fingerprints in the evolutionary process? You know that that's you know if you can show me how it God's fingerprints are detectable in the evolutionary process, I'm much more inclined to. To, to entertain that idea, you know, and, and again, at one point in my life, I actually held to a version of theistic evolution, probably very similar to the one Francis Collins advocates in, you know, uh, the language of God. Uh, now, something that I'm very intrigued with is the idea of structuralism, you know, where, you know, you, you don't have, you know, evolution isn't a historically contingent process, but it's the outcomes are, are prescribed uh, by the very fabric or very nature of the universe itself. That's mm. an intriguing idea that I'm, I'm actually quite open to. Uh, Sounds like where Molinism. It, what's that? Sounds like Molinism. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that, if, if that's like God's middle knowledge. No, I mean, it, it's essentially this idea that, you know, that um, basically the, the, the laws of nature dictate, basically certain evolutionary outcomes and those outcomes are inevitable and they happen to be 
you know, the, the just right outcomes uh, that are necessary for, for life to exist. So it's, it's yeah. a very I intriguing idea. I was just thinking about the, that conversation between William Lane Craig and James White. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I am going to get to it sometime this week. I'm really looking forward to it. Between that. Yeah. people, we've, we've been waiting for this conversation forever, and it finally happened. Um, and also, for those interested um, in looking into uh, process structuralism, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy has a really good video on his YouTube channel. Just type in Inspiring Philosophy. I think his video is called, is, Was Life Inevitable? So uh, the timer went off, and uh, that means it's time to go to the um, Q&A portion of this debate. So I will start off. Uh, I will go down in order. I'll start off with Nick. Oh, I hope I'm saying your name right. Nick Buza. He asks, Buzz, you made a comparison between intelligent design with cars and natural selection with animals. Do you see the false equivalency when cars can't advance themselves without humans? Yeah, I mean, fair question. And this, of course, is a point that Aaron, you know, ably made as well. And uh, uh, yeah, fair point. Fair point. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that I would, would want to push that analogy too hard other than to say that, that we do see the, you know, the evolution of designed systems. And, you know, we, you know if we are talking about our work as, as human designers, you know, we've yet to produce a, a self-replicating machine, but that essentially is the idea of the, you know, the von Neumann universal replicator, right? Or the, uh, is that, you know, that potentially one day we could actually make self-replicating machines. So that's a, a vision towards, you know, what we would try to accomplish as, as human designers. And so, you know, God being, you know, beyond what our capabilities is as human beings, why would it not be possible for God to create design systems that could also replicate? So, you know, I don't know that it's, uh, you know, that it, that the analogy is that poor, I guess. Okay. Next question is also by Nick, but it's directed at Aaron. He says, Aaron, you mentioned the fact that only 1% of scientists at the PhD level believe in creationism. Uh, isn't this an argument from authority? And how is it possible that we can find the 1% are correct? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, you know, in fact, if you go back far enough, uh, you know, basically all scientists were Christians. Um, and so, yeah, it is completely possible that the 1% is correct and the 99% are incorrect. Uh, but I just say it to say I'm not making an argument from authority, but I am saying it is interesting that people who actually are working scientists with PhDs in the fields of evolutionary biology, 99% of them embrace evolutionary biology. Whereas those science, those who don't are usually pastors, uh, you know, political pundits, uh, talk show hosts. It's just interesting to me that most of the people critical and vo vocally critical of evolution are people like Ken Ham with a mechanical engineering degree. Um, you know, uh, there are lots of creationist books that I've read are written by people who are MDs, and not PhDs, um, or people who are lawyers like uh, like Philip E. Johnson. It's just interesting to me that people who study this as their nine to five job professionally, such as myself, have looked at the evidence for years and years and worked with it, published it, presented it, taught it, but yet somehow we're wrong. So it isn't an argument for authority because, yes, I could be wrong. It could be that the creationist talk show host who doesn't have any college education and doesn't believe in evolution is right. 
Um, that could certainly be the case, but it does make one wonder when people who study this for a living are almost completely convinced by it. And Aaron, I, I also, I, the way, when I was listening to you, when you brought this up earlier, what I understood, how I understood your point was you were arguing that like 99% of, you know, working scientists in the field affirm evolution, but a whole bunch of them, like 50, I think you said 50% believed in God. They were either Christians or Jews or some kind of theist. And so you're, you're what I understood you to be saying, um, and you talk about this in your book as well, was that uh, the, the argument that they're just doing it out of a desire to, you know, they, they preclude God, that that's, you know, that's a failed argument. Is, is that correct? Yeah, because a lot of times it's an argument for motivation. You know, all scientists are, you know, atheists and naturalists, and they just want to push it by, you know, using Darwin. And of course, that is, you know, that's just an appeal to motivation. Um, you know, and furthermore, you know, here's the thing. Like, if the reasons to believe Origins model is so persuasive and it's so grounded in science, why isn't it taught at any college or university or any classroom? Because the whole Kitzmiller versus Dover thing highlighted the fact that Evolution isn't mandated to be taught in any school system anywhere. Evolutionary biology is taught because it works and it explains the evidence so well. It has so much uh, explanatory power and scope that scientists choose to teach it because it explains the evidence so well. So I would say if common descent is on comparable ground with common design, I'm surprised that there's no one that teaches the reasons to believe origin model if it's that robust. You know, let me just offer a point here, though, is that this idea that, you know, uh, all the work, all working evolutionary biologists reject creationism, that could also be a self-selection effect too. You know, uh, it, it, that could uh, explain that data. And, you know, at Reasons to Believe, we actually have a scholar community that is about 150 uh, people uh, large and is growing very rapidly. And it consists of a, a significant number of, of scientists who are highly accomplished uh, in their academic careers and their professional careers that would align with uh, the RTB model. And so, you know, th there's probably a lot more people that are sympathetic to the idea of old earth creationism, maybe not all the specifics of the RTB model, but to old earth creationism. Then you might then then you might think, and you, I think you would be surprised to see the the people that are are part of that that align with RTB. So yeah, granted, um, and, and again, I'm not making an argument from authority. I mean, thankfully, philosophy you can't determine truth by just counting noses. I mean, you have 150 people, I have 150. That's why I've presented all the evidence tonight. I want you, the viewer, to think about all this evidence and think to yourself: Does this better support a creation model? Or does it better support an evolutionary model that you have a fused chimpanzee chromosome in every one of your cells with the same genes in the same order as a chimpanzee? Does that support a creation model or does that make better sense in the light of evolutionary biology? So the next uh, question is the complete sinner's guide. He says, Evan, I have a serious question. What kind of guitar does Aaron have in the background? Great discussion, guys. A lot of this is over my head, but I'm learning a little. Yeah, guilty as charged. Uh, mia culpa. Yeah, I have uh, way too many guitars. Some my wife probably doesn't even know about. I have like seven or eight in here. I tried to hide them because I thought it would look more professional if I didn't have a bunch of guitars. But 
very quickly. Uh, Ibanez RGRT621DP with EMG8185s. I got a Squire Telecaster, which don't laugh. It's my favorite. It's way better than your $3,000 Telecaster. I have a, uh, a Fender... Um, uh, what was my Fender Stratocaster? It's a parts caster. That's what I was trying to think of. Um, I have a... Uh, Epiphone, don't laugh. That's also another great guitar. I have too many. We'd be out here all night, but I have more than that. But <laughs> Christy Peterson asks, question, both arguments to some extent get, gave an impression of some things in nature being outside of God's intervention. Do you both consider God to be active moment to moment in nature's systems? I do. You know, I mean, you know, yes. that's, that seems to be, you know, what Colossians is teaching is that, that very idea. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. I, I do believe that God sustains every single breath of all living things and, you know, you and me and everyone else included. I do agree. Yeah. One of the things that I think would probably be helpful um, if everyone on all sides uh, would stop doing is kind of, you know, John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, talks about how we sort of view God's, act, you know, the things that happen in the world as a sort of pie, where we have, you know, natural things on one side, and we have things that God does on the other. The things that God does can't really be explained are things like the resurrection or the parting of the red sea or the creation of the universe out of nothing they're things that science can't explain but if we're going to hold you know especially if you're like a calvinist or if you're a molinist like me and you want to hold to like a high view of sovereignty you know that god you know every, everything's for god you know glory um and you want we want to say that god is responsible for the things that are not that are scientifically explained as well as, as the things that are not scientifically explained. So that's why that's why I framed the debate the way I did. How did God create us? Because God did create us. It's just a question of in what in what manner and what method. So uh, let me see. That's the same. That's the same question. Let me scroll down. Um. Oh wait a minute. That was a two part question. Okay. So she so she asked. Um, do you consider God to be active moment by moment in nature systems? And then she said, if so, is it important to make a distinction between his intervention and what we witness in nature uh, and why slash why not? There's like a character. I think there's, there's like a character limit on um, uh, in the live chat. So if you go over, it will like cut it up into multiple comments. Hmm. So. Well, you, you know, to me, you know, I, I, the way I would respond to that, and I don't know if this is a, if, if I fully appreciate the question, but, you know, when you look at Genesis 1 and uh, Genesis 2, and you look at the different verbs in, in the Hebrew that are used to describe God's creative activity, these verbs carry with them a range of connotations. So you have words like, verbs like bara, which means to originate something new that's never existed, uh, asa, yatsar, uh, which mean to uh, create something new from uh, pre-existing material. You have words like uh, haya, which means uh, to let come to pass. It sort of gives the idea that 
that God is superintending a process that he's, he's put in place and the Shah, which is God, you know, setting in place natural mechanisms that are producing the outcome. And so to me, you have a range of ways in which God is active in his creation that, that I think can be explored. And so, you know, uh, I think Aaron and I would both agree that God could create through process, that God could create processes that, that then operate on their own. Um, you know, that, um, and I would argue that God could also directly and personally intervene um, to bring about his creative purposes. And I think in those instances, in all those instances, we should see evidence that's, that's detectable, that, that, that points out that this is indeed God's fingerprints and God's handiwork. And so that's, you know, the, the project that we're exploring at Reasons to Believe ultimately is how do we, you know, can we see God's fingerprints in nature and, and uh, with the expectation that we should see them? Okay, Aaron, do you want to add anything to that now that I've brought out the full question? Alexa, stop. <laughs> I forgot to unplug her. <laughs> That's going to become yeah, a meme eventually. I just know it. <laughs> yeah, so what was the, the last part of the question about God's um, intervention? Okay, so first she asked, direct um, yeah, both arguments to some extent gave the impression of some things in nature being outside of God's intervention, we both consider God to be active moment, uh, moment to moment in nature systems. Then she said, if so, is it important to make a distinction between his intervention and what we witness in nature uh, and why or why not? Yeah. So, you know, this might surprise people, but I actually agree with Fuzz on a lot. I, I agree that the Cambrian explosion could be God intervening. Um, I think that, you know, the, the first living cell could be God intervening. I have no problem with that, but the, the problem I do have is when it tries to become uh, like a scientific hypothesis, because I think it's just misconceived. It's just that dog's not going to hunt. You just can't use, that's the wrong tool to use. Um, and so, yeah, I do believe that God could have created the first cell. He could have created every single, uh, you know, of the 9 million species and just made it look as though, uh, you know, there's common descent by the way he, you know, organized them in the fossil layer and, you know, had them have, you know, uh, you know, different design throughout time. And so, yeah, that could be the case, but that's the thing. I, I, how am I going to, how am I going to scientifically support that hypothesis? I mean, that's the thing. I'm going to say, okay, well, this thing's very complicated and science can't explain how it is this way. Cause it's so complicated. It must be design. Here's a fingerprint of God. Well, I mean, that's the thing, like I said, people used to say about, uh, you know, babies in the womb, people used to say about flowers and the sun rising. Uh, but now we have mechanistic scientific explanations for all those things. Does it make it any less uh, majestic? No. Like, does it take any of the glory away from God? No. I still praise God for babies being born and sunrises and flowers. They're still just as meaningful. God is still uh, just involved in all of that. Uh, but I think it's a dangerous argument to say, well, we don't know how this works. And so it's so complex and, you know, must be designed. This must be a fingerprint of God. Because if science is any guide, if history is any guide, we will figure out the evolutionary lineage of the hominids. We will figure out that first living cell. We will figure out more about the Cameron explosion and maybe we won't. But the thing is, if we do, then the argument for God is going to become an argument against God. And as a Christian, that's what really concerns me because people who, you know, people who hear your arguments are going to say, Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, I believed in God based on that Fuzzerana argument where he said, you know, there has to be a design in the Cameron explosion because science can't understand it. But now science has in 2040 or whatever, 
And so, well, I guess, you know, that's a bad argument for God. I may as well not believe in him. Um, I mean, really my own story, uh, you know, if I can share for a second is, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian household either. I hated evolution. I thought evolution was a fraud. I became a Christian, was influenced by Lee Strobel and Frank uh, Turek and Norman Geisler. I thought evolution was a fraud. I actually took evolutionary biology in college for my undergrad to try to get inside this proof evolution. But when I actually took the undergraduate course in evolution, I found so many things that none of my creationist intelligence design books ever mentioned. I found everything was either misrepresented or quote mine or just outright misconstrued, or there was a lot of, you know, fact hiding going on. And so believe me, I didn't want evolution to be true. And I still wish that evolution was not the case because if I could find a way that every animal is especially created by God, a miracle, and that Adam and Eve lived 6,000 years ago, that would make my Christian life so much less complicated. I wish that were the case. And right now, I have to suspend judgment. I have the book of nature, which says humans share common ancestors with apes. And this common ancestor goes back, you know, 4.1 billion years to the first cell. And I have the book of scripture that says, you know, Adam and Eve, we were created. I don't know how to mesh those two things at the moment. I'm working towards it. And I hope that's something I can do, but I may not be able to. But I have the Holy Spirit that testifies the central truth of the Christian message that Jesus Christ did die for my sins and raised from the dead. But I don't believe the inner witness can tell me other things like, you know, what, what was what was it like, you know, four billion years ago when God was doing this or that? And so in some, I just find a lot of these propositions just to be kind of meaningless because they're on. They're unverifiable to say that God dipped his hand in 542 million years ago and made all these different phyla. And then God kind of took his hands out and then he waited like another 20 million years and he dipped his hand in again. That could be the case. But scientifically, how are you ever going to prove or disprove that hypothesis? It just seems like a non-starter to me as a scientist, even if it could be true. But you'd have to believe it by faith. You know, Aaron, I, I, I think you're to some degree not being fair with the the design argument because you know the I've worked very hard you know for 25 years plus not to make an argument that evolution can't explain something therefore it must be designed now you know uh, again you know part of I, I am you know I do discuss the fact that hey you know chemical evolution doesn't seem to be able to account for the origin of the very first cells but the argument isn't doesn't stop there. The argument, it you know, uh, begins there, and it's okay if that's the case. Then, if the alternative is design, what do we see that are positive features in biochemistry that that indicate an artificiality to them that they they look like they're designed? And can you create a rigorous, robust uh, case for design? You know, uh, in in my book, creating life in the lab, we talk about work in prebiotic chemistry and synthetic biology that, that again shows, you know, uh, intelligent agency seems to be critical in, in affecting, you know, chemical processes that lead to these chemical super systems that begin to assume the properties of life. So the, the attempt is to actually make a, a positive case, you know, for design that's a multi-pronged cumulative case uh, not just simply an isolated case. And so I'm not making a single design argument, but it's really a cumulative case. Um, you know, my latest book is called Fit for a Purpose, where we, we talk about the anthropic coincidences that we see in biochemical systems as, again, part of that case. So, um, you know, so I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's not fair to, the, to, to simply say, you know, 
things are so complex, we can't explain them. Therefore, they must be designed. You know, there's, you know, most people that are making design arguments are trying to move beyond that point. Though I do agree with you that there are plenty of people that make that that kind of an argument. And, you know, um, you know, I, I uh, call it the golly gee whiz, look how complex argument. And so I, I don't think that's a, an effective way or appropriate way to argue uh, for design. And I've tried very hard not to do that. You know, uh, also, you know, that part of the risk of, of being a Christian is, you know, we, we do hold to beliefs that are in principle falsifiable. This is uh, Paul's point, I think, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, if it wasn't, if the resurrection doesn't happen, we are to be pitied the most among all people, right? And so, you know, Paul is, is basically throwing the gauntlet down where the whole edifice of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. And, you know, and I think it's more than just, I do think that there's a very important role for the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But I think, you know, Christianity seems to invite uh, objective testing. And so people make, are people misguided when they're trying to make a historical case for the resurrection? Or if you're making a cosmological argument, that argument could unwind uh, if we discover compelling evidence for the multiverse, right, as an example. And so, you know, does that mean that we shouldn't advance those kinds of arguments? Um, you know, I... So I, I think my own place. epistemological, from my own epistemological perspective, I I see it like this: like I've got like a two like a dozen arguments for God. If one of them fails, that's not going to shatter my faith because I still got a whole bunch of other ones. Um, but before I move on to the next question, I want to I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, books and resources that people can. Well, go can I to respond to that get. question real quick or respond to that comment? Um. Yeah, sure. So I'll make it quick. So, you know, I don't I don't know that I'm being unreasonable. I mean, I want to say, first of all, I do commend the project of trying to understand both the book of nature and the book of scripture. So I don't want to come down as like, you know, I'm attacking you or I think, you know, your, your book is, you know, dumb or something like that. I respect you. And I think you're very humble and intelligent, articulate. I just think that I, I think a model that I think is useful, more useful in this discussion for discerning the truth uh, is something like William and Craig's recent book uh, on quest for the historical Adam. I like the way that he approaches it. Cause he look, he tries to exegete, exegete Genesis without looking at science at all. He puts science completely aside, just exegetes Genesis. What was the author trying to say? And then he looks at the scientific evidence apart from the Bible. What does science have to offer? And then when he has both of them, he tries to find a way to integrate them. Like whether he does this successfully or not, that's kind of your call. I'm not going to say, uh, but I think that's a viable model. I don't think the model of, let me start with the Bible and these a priori assumptions and things I'll exclude that could be possibilities and move forward. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have enormous well, amount of respect. Well, Sorry, I just have enormous amount of respect for William Lane Craig, first of all, and uh, you know, I've, I've gone through the book in detail, and I think it's impressive that as a theologian he engages the scientific literature the way that he does. But in a sense, his project is. Is, though he he very much dislikes the RTV approach, uh, the concordist approach, he is in effect engaged in concordism because he's saying scripture indicates there is a historical atom, and now he's trying to defend the idea of a historical atom in light of, of, of an evolutionary history of life on Earth. 
And so he is looking at uh, taking his biblical view and integrating it with the scientific record. So he's, I would argue he's, he's functionally doing the identical work that we are. It's just that he's approaching it uh, from a very different perspective. Yeah. Uh, Let me move you know, on. Well, thanks for spoiling the ending. I didn't finish but, it yet. But before, uh, before <laughs> I do, I'm gonna, I do want to mention some resources to look at the biblical. Tonight's debate was a scientific debate. We were looking at, you know, there are places, I know some Christians, when I was talking about the debate and promoting it, they were disappointed. They were like, why aren't you talking about the Bible? Why aren't you talking about the Bible? Well, there is a place for that. And those debates have been had, and I have, I may host some on the on this channel at some point. But I think it's important to look at what the science has to say as well. But if uh, for resources looking at biblical evidence, you can look at, for example, Hugh Ross's book, Navigating Genesis, where he talks about Genesis one to eleven. That's uh, from his older creationist uh, concordist perspective. Um, you can also look at uh, John Walton's books. Uh, the Lost World of Genesis 1 and The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Um, I found those books to be very persuasive, and I found his Adam and Eve book to be helpful because I, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of you are like really, uh, you know, the whole Adam thing, is, that was really the last theological stumbling block for me. Um, you can look at the William Lane Craig book on the historical Adam. Uh, S. Joshua Swamidas has one out, and of course, Fuzrana has a, a book on Adam. Uh, called who was Adam. So, um, yeah. So you can uh, and you can find a, a lot of these uh, scriptural exegetical resources at Reasons to Believe Reasons.org. You can go to, on BioLogos's website, their theistic evolutionist uh, organization. Um, and also, shameless plug, I've you know I had a whole series uh, on on the live stream uh, on Genesis one to eleven. So you can you can go. Uh, watch those at your leisure. So I want to uh, move on to a question from Andrew Peterson. He says, question for both. As I understand, the purpose of any scientific theory is making claims about the world which allow us to make useful predictions. What are some useful predictions of your theory? Uh, well, um, one of the predictions that we made in actually even prior to, to publishing Who Was Adam, but in Who Was Adam is this idea that, uh, that you know, junk DNA will turn out to be, you know, to, to be functional. And, you know, I think the trajectory, the trend line is, is supportive of that, you know, that prediction being satisfied. Um, you know, I, um, so that would be an example of a, of a prediction that would be made. Um, you know, I think another prediction is, the idea that as human beings, we would stand apart from other creatures because we bear God's image and that 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 dis distinction would be um, reflected in our our capabilities as human beings. And I think it's intriguing that uh, at least a, a minor a growing minority of anthropologists and, and primatologists are actually ascribing to the, to the idea of human exceptionalism. And the, the ways in which they see human beings being exceptional, I think, aligns with the, the image of God if you adopt a structuralist or a resemblance view of the image of God. So those would be two examples of what I would call useful predictions uh, that, that seem to be bearing out. Aaron, that, that, was, uh, that was also a question for you. 
Yeah, so obviously evolutionary makes a lot of useful testable predictions. Um, and I presented a lot of them uh, during my introductory statement. And so the proposed evolutionary relationship between chimpanzees and humans, uh, as Dr. Rana points out in his book, I mean, that's been around since Linnaeus in the 1700s. I mean, he lumped chimps and humans together because they look so anatomically similar and otherwise. And of course, he wasn't thinking about evolution at that point. Um, but later, Darwin came up with, you know, pretty much the same idea. Uh, he was kind of afraid to publish it in 1859 with his Origin of Species. But in 1875, he ended up coming out with Descent of Man, where he finally explicated his ideas on where humans came from and that they share common ancestry with the apes. Now, mind you, this is about, you know, uh, 40 plus years before we discovered or rediscovered Mendel and we knew anything about genetics or inheritance. So before genetics at all, we already had this proposed phylogenetic tree whereby chimpanzees were our closest relative and then followed by the gorillas and then the orangs and then the monkeys and so on. And so here is a testable, a testable hypothesis. If we are, oh, look, we've discovered these new things called pseudogenes, which are broken genes. Hmm, you know, let's look at those and map them onto our phylogenetic tree. If our hypothesis is correct, we shouldn't see any of those pseudogenes out of place. The more, the closer we get to our closest relative, the more pseudogenes we share. The further we get back in time from our closest relative, the, the fewer pseudogenes we share. And of course, that is a useful prediction, which tests, which passes with flying colors. We can do the same thing with not only the olfactory reception uh, family pseudogenes, with all kinds of other families, produce the same result. Nothing is out of place. Same with endogenous retroviruses. We can do the same thing. HERVK family, other families. And so I would say that evolution makes many predictions, which are both verifiable and falsifiable, and it passes all those with flying colors. Okay, so Travis Lee says, yo, I love RTB. And um, finding <laughs> truth. Whose initials are those? Who's RTB? Uh, reasons to believe. I'm just kidding. Uh, Sorry. Dry humor. Oh, <laughs> so uh, finding truth says, um, cerebral faith video, I was... I was late, so sorry if this was addressed. Uh, question for Aaron. Does he believe evolution is unguided? If not, how does the mechanism work? So I do believe that God superintended uh, evolution. I do believe he's intimately involved in the creative process from beginning to end. I think prior to creation, he had us absolutely in mind exactly the way we are. Um, human in the image of God. Uniquely, we could you know, have spiritual capacities to relate to him and commune with him. So I do believe God is intimately involved in creation. Absolutely. Um, I'm not a deist. I don't think that, you know, God wound up the, the world like a mechanical clock and just let it run. And, you know, he's off in his easy chair somewhere doing whatever. I do believe that God was intimately involved in all aspects of creation and he still is involved. And I would say that the fundamental difference between Fuzz and I is I just don't think that it's possible to uh, put scientific evidence to that. Yeah, and I would I would say I just want to like interject. Um, I think I think Molinism probably provides like the best account for explaining sort of how God could use evolution, because if you think if you like look at um, if you like look at a like security camera footage of New York, it looks random. It looks unguided. People are running around doing all sorts of crazy stuff. They're getting in cabs. They're going to work. They're um, but we believe that God is sovereign over human history. You know, Jesus, um, Jesus's crucifixion was, you know, everything leading and everything leading up to it 
was under the providence of God. So I, I think I think Molinism offers a pretty pr- pretty nice way to account for that. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Gracie Gracie Bellino says. If we agree that species level changes happen via genetic mutations, be they by God's hand or by random occurrence, how can creationism explain natural selection as a result of these mutations? I'm not exactly sure. Oh, wait, no, no. This is a second part as well. Uh, and why can't these changes in populations occur in, independent of God's intervention? Now, I'm not sure who that is um, directed towards. I suspect it's directed at Aaron. Yeah, I'll take that one. Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, the answer might be shocking, but yes, I agree. And this is probably why most Christians disavow, uh, you know, evolutionary creation. I agree that the whole process from, you know, uh, chemicals on earth, non-living all the way up to us could be accomplished without any divine agent at all. And I understand that is, it seems very scary to a lot of Christians, but this is the thing. I don't believe that. I do believe that by faith, that God was involved. And again, that's something I can't prove. I don't have any scientific evidence to prove that. Um, all I have is my faith, and I do believe it. It's a religious argument. I don't expect it to persuade Alexa, anybody. Stop. Stop. <laughs> what do you got, girls in there? What are they doing? <laughs> I've got a digital assistant that gives off reminders. Oh, that's what you call her. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I've got to remind, I've got to remember. I need to I need to tell her to remind me to unplug her before I do these. That's what I need to do. <laughs> that's a paradox. No, but seriously, you know, this is one thing I think that's often misrepresented in evolutionary biology is, you know, when we say random, because uh, you know, obviously, a random mutation is the big engine driving, you know, most of evolutionary change we see. But when we say random in evolutionary biology, we don't mean that there is no purpose. Uh, because science just can't simply can't speak to purpose. I can't say there is a purpose. There is no purpose. All we can say is that mutations occur irrespective of the benefit of the host. Now, I believe as a Christian that God is absolutely behind those mutations, guiding them to what he ultimately sovereignly has chose to create. Uh, But again, as a scientific proposition, there's no way I can put purpose under a microscope in the lab and see whether there is any or not. It's just a question that science can't address. And so I take that on faith. Okay, Nick Buza, um, he says, and this is referring, I think, to an earlier part of this debate. This was was asked, this was typed in at 9.24 p.m. Uh, He says, Dr. Rana, you were left, you were let off too easy with your answer to Aaron's question. Uh, Definitively, what would have to what would have to be discovered for you to believe that God was not an unmoved mover of life on earth? Um, yeah, I, I would have to think about that a bit um, because uh, it's in, in a sense to me, it's a hypothetical question because I've already seen a preponderance of evidence that indicates to me, you know, when I look at biochemical systems, when I look at the origin of life, that there has to be a mind behind everything. So it now becomes this hypothetical question, you know, and so to me, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm utterly convinced and because of the evidence that there is a, a, a creator behind everything. Um, so, you know, I, you know, and, and it again, went back to my graduate school days where 
I was an agnostic and had no consideration of God in anything. And, and yet, when I, again, saw the elegant design of biochemical systems and the, the, the very uh, real and intractable problems with chemical evolution, you know, I was forced to conclude that there was a, a, a you know, a, a cause behind everything, at least at the origin of life level and at the design of biochemical systems. Now, you know, the, the question of, again, uh, when will I be, it, what would make me be, become convinced of common descent? Uh, you know, in, in some respects, I would say that I do recognize the compelling evidence that people present in favor of common descent. And my project isn't really to, to refute that evidence, but rather my project is to say, is there another alternative to view that evidence in, in a way that would be compatible with a design framework, with a, a creation model framework? So that's really my project with the idea that if you can come to the table with an equivalent model, that, that you know, uh, I think is, is a model that's more compatible with scripture than common descent. Uh, but I, I don't think I would ever argue uh, that a common descent model is incompatible with scripture. I think that, I mean, it's evident from people like Aaron and, and other organizations uh, like BioLogos or my friend Josh Schwamadas that, that there's ways in which you can uh, engage, you know, integrate, you know, an evolutionary history to humanity's origin with scripture. I just don't find those approaches particularly satisfying or compelling. So, okay, so, we got, so we're going on two hours here. I will ask, I will pick two more questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them, uh, but we, we got a lot of questions tonight. So I'll just pick two more and then we'll do the closing statements. So the first of the final two uh, is from Brando. He asks for Aaron, is there any amount of issues with the theory of evolution that would cause you to drop it as a failure? From what I've seen, there's there's been plenty of issues but the theory just shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Fair question. Uh, yeah, I think there would be many things off the top of my head I can think of that would cause me to drop evolutionary theory at the drop of a hat. Uh, I mean, we looked at the uh, proposed uh, phylogeny of humans and primates, you know, and we looked at how the ERVs and pseudogenes map onto those. And like I said, if there was one pseudogene out of place, that would cause me to drop evolutionary theory. If we saw a pseudogene that was shared by humans and rhesus monkeys, but not shared by humans and chimps, that would be a big problem for common ancestry of humans and apes. If I saw it in the pseudogene evidence and the ERV evidence, or even the fossil record, if we find, uh, I mean, this is kind of a uh, cantankerous answer, but you know, someone once said, what would, someone once answered this question with, you know, uh, a rabbit in the Precambrian, you know, that's what would cause them to drop evolution. But it's true. And <laughs> Who is it? Not, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Dawkins who said that. It, it's not surprising. I think, he's I think pretty, it was he's pretty crabby. He's pretty crabby and curmudgeonly, but, but I would say, you know, if there was something in the fossil record that was out of place, I would be more than happy. I mean, I, I didn't want evolution to be true, and sometimes I still try to think, is there a way that it's not true? Uh, but when I'm honest and I look at the evidence, I have to conclude that it is the case. Um, and so, you know, I would pose the question, uh, you know, is there any fossil out of place? Do we ever find a hominid fossil in the Precambrian? Do we ever find a hominid fossil in the Devonian? 
Um, do we ever find a, an Ediacaran fossil, you know, in the, in, you know, the, the Eocene? Um, it just seems like everything lines up to me so far. I don't see anything yet that has indicated that there's a major problem uh, for the theory of evolution. But yes, there are many things in short that would cause me to drop it. It's a falsifiable hypothesis. That's why I love about it. And that's why it works. That's why it's so successful. That's why it's taught everywhere. That's why Kids Miller versus Dover voted in favor or ruled in favor of evolution because it's a real science. It's testable. It's, it's falsifiable. It's verifiable. It works. Um, and then the final of the two questions is from Finding Truth. He says, when Aaron says by faith, uh, does he mean blind faith or pistis faith? You're going to have to translate that. I, I imagine uh, that's it, Greek or something. Yeah, pistis, like, it means, like, to, to put your trust in, uh, you know, you can you can believe that God exists on the basis of evidence and arguments like the, the Kalam cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument, the minimal facts argument for the resurrection, and so on. Mm. Uh, but you still have faith because you trust in the God that you have a good reason to believe exists. Yeah, uh, fair question. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I do like arguments for the existence of God. Uh, a lot of great philosophical arguments. Um, I do like, um, you know, arguments for the historicity of, you know, the gospel and the resurrection. Uh, Gary Habermas is a great book recently on that. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, I think the Bible teaches that the primary way that we know the great truths of the Christian gospel is through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I do believe that the Holy Spirit testifies to me of those things. Um, and so it depends when it comes to the resurrection. Um, I do have an inner confirmation of that. And it's not something I can use to show people it's true. It's just a way that I know it's true. And, you know, I do have things on top of that. Like I can talk about the philosophical evidence for God. I can talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection and things like that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, for me, it's about trust. And so I, I do have trust in God. And I think just like Jesus said, you know, when the Pharisees said, you know, you know, do a parlor trick for us, show us a sign. And he said, no sign's going to be given to you except the, you know, the sign that was of Jonah. You know, I think he was pretty much saying, you know, you want tangible proof. You want to be able to say, you know, oh, look, there's a worldwide flood. Genesis is true or, or whatever. But I don't think we're going to get that. I think God wants us to trust in him with a childlike faith. So hopefully they answered it. Uh, okay. And so we, uh, we, Brando says, thanks for answering my question. And so we move on to the uh, closing statements. And I think, let me see if I remember correctly, Dr. Rana, it goes first. If I, if, yeah, I remember, uh, if I remember direct debate rules correctly, the one who opens first closes last, if I, if I remember correctly. How long is the closing statement? <laughs> uh, each is about, each is five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Just, well, first, first of all, I just want to say this has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed uh, the conversation with uh, you, Aaron, and and, and Evan. Your 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 interjection into the conversation has been a lot of fun, and you know, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize here that that we do have some uh, very significant differences. Um, but I think you know the the thing that unites the three of us is that you know our faith as Christians, and I think that's really important that you know, that we have these vigorous conversations, uh, but yet that we don't um, uh, 
we, we, we look for a way to have these conversations in a way that creates unity, not division among believers. And that's, to me, something that grieves me enormously uh, is what, what I've seen is that science faith issues have become highly divisive within the church uh, and continue to be divisive in the church. And so I think it's important that, again, we, we feel free to, to challenge one another, to disagree with one another, but that it's done you know, in a spirit of, of unity and a spirit of respect and love. And so I, I've very much enjoyed uh, your perspectives, Aaron. And, um, you know, it's, I said at one point, it's, it's exciting to me as somebody who's uh, getting older these days to see, you know, uh, two fine young men who love the Lord and who are, are thought leaders and who, you know, are using their, their gifts to, to really bless and, and encourage the church. So that, that's encouraging to me, though we may disagree on on certain things, I think again that those things that we do agree on is really significant, and and I think, you know, uh, we we shouldn't underestimate the significance of uh, questions that involve the philosophy of science or questions that involve uh, biblical hermeneutics, particularly with respect to Genesis one to eleven, and and how those perspectives actually influence uh, the way that we think about. Uh, the scientific evidence and the different uh, possible models. I think that's probably the the biggest difference that Aaron and I have would be really more differences that align in the philosophy of science and, um, you know, uh, the boundaries of science and then also probably hermeneutical issues as well. Uh, and that's okay, you know, but uh, but I think we we want to uh, acknowledge those, you know, as we close that, that probably some of the differences we, we see between the two of us, uh, along, along, along those lines. And, um, you know, my objective again is to, to, to try to treat the scientific evidence fairly and, and openly and to acknowledge, you know, the, why people uh, hold to an evolutionary perspective. I tried to do that to the best of my ability in everything that I've written. I'm not always been successful necessarily, but I, I've tried to represent the evolutionary perspective fairly. And again, my project isn't so much to, to uh, challenge the evolutionary paradigm as such, but rather it's to say, can we produce you know, a, a competing model uh, that sees God, that, that's friendly to the design perspective, that's friendly to a perspective of special creation. Uh, and, and the objective isn't to actually produce a, a scientific model so much as really is to produce a, an apologetics tool that can help engage people with science faith questions in a hopefully in an, in an interesting way. So anyway, that's that's what I'll close with. OK, so I'll restart the timer and Aaron, you can start your closing statement now. Yeah, so I definitely want to. You know, echo the statements of uh, Dr. Ron. I'm, I'm honored to share the stage with him. Um, you know, I've known about his work for a long time. And so, you know, when Evan first emailed me and he's like, hey, would you debate Fuzz Rana? I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Fuzz Rana is never going to agree to debate me. I'm some, you know, nobody grad student in the middle of nowhere. And I was shocked when Fuzz Rana's assistant's like, okay, what what day and time? I was like, wow. I was like, I can't believe Fuzz Rana must be really bored or something to debate me. Um, so in short, I'm, I'm honored to share the stage with you. And and uh, I really do applaud um, that you're engaging with 
the scientific evidence. And I think out of anybody um, in, you know, old earth, young earth, I think I find you to be the most genuine, the most humble and the most honest. Um, I mean, it was almost too easy to go through your book and take out quotes and put them on the screen because you're so honest in that you admit, you know, like this, this very compelling evidence for common descent, so on and so forth. Um, and so I just applaud you for your honesty. And I'm just excited that there are Christians that are seriously engaging with, you know, the material that's out there. Um, so I want to thank you. I consider you my brother. Uh, I want to echo what you said. That's um, the most primary thing to me is, like you said, if the tomb is empty, we're all just wasting our time and we're idiots. Um, and so I consider you my brother. That's the biggest thing. You know, evolution, it's an interesting thing to me, um, but it's not the center of my life and it's not the center of my web of beliefs. Um, so, you know, that being said, uh, I'll just add a few closing comments about, you know, kind of my project and maybe how it's a little different. Um, I would just say, you know, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, uh, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will find you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. Um, and so, you know, this is a rabbit hole that I've been going down for you know, 12 plus years. Uh, this started because I wanted to take a bio, uh, evolution biology class to disprove evolution. Uh, I used to even informally debate people on evolution and, you know, trounce them, embarrass them. Um, you know, and I was really confronted with this, you know, crisis of faith. Uh, you know, I wanted comfort, but I also wanted truth. You know, and I realized I had to seek after truth. And in the end, maybe I would eat comfort and I still, have, I still don't have it yet. I still don't have all the answers. Um, but I just want to encourage people to do their own homework. Um, you know, consider what Dr. Ron said, consider what I said, and do your own homework. You can go to scholar.google.com and you can access a lot of primary literature um, and use the mind that God gave you. Uh, I mean, it's a good stewardship of our mind to yeah, use that's it. That's my slogan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, that's that's my slogan. Use, it's use freebie advertising for you. <laughs> Subscribe now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, use your own mind and draw your own conclusions. Um, and I do believe that God is the God of all truth. And so I do believe that however counterintuitive, if something is true, it will ultimately lead to him. Uh, I don't think that if you uh, deny common ancestry and common descent, I don't think you accepting that will cause God to fall off his throne. Um, there's no monsters under rocks that are going to jump out and eat God. If you believe a certain thing, now there's things that could make you be outside the bounds of orthodoxy, not a Christian anymore. But I don't think that evolution is one of those. Um, I think the there's a big false dichotomy that says, well, you can be an atheist and accept evolution, or you can be a Christian and accept some version of creationism. I think that is a false dichotomy. There are not just two options. There are also there are a myriad of options. One of them being you can accept the scientific evidence that shows common ancestry. You can accept scripture, accept scripture as inspired and divine and authoritative. And you can kind of be in a position that I am saying, I'm not really sure how to put all this together right now. Um, and I think that's a respectable thing to suspend your judgment and say, you know what? I honestly just don't know. I trust God. I trust his promises. I trust his word. And I believe it's inspired, but I'm also persuaded by all this evidence that he has given to us in the book of nature. And I'm not sure how to put it together yet. Um, and again, I think my methodology for going about, uh, you know, trying to figure out the two, in relation to each other would be a little bit different. I don't like the prospect of interpreting one in light of the other, uh, but that's just because I find that those kinds of arguments that can be theologically precarious, I think those could be stumbling blocks to people coming to the faith. Um, and I also think that they can cause trouble for people like me, who at one point 
you know, kind of accepted Christianity with the premise of no evolution. And then at one point I found out, wow, evolution's actually true. It happened. And I think, well, what do I do about the Jesus part? Because I kind of took it, you know, I kind of took the whole thing as a package deal. And I really had to grapple with, well, did Lee Strobel lie to me about the resurrection of Jesus? Now I got to start all over again and start my whole project over. Um, but yeah, I want to thank you, Evan, for having me on. It's an honor to be here. And Dr. Ron, I enjoyed uh, talking with you so much. Uh, you have no idea how much I admire you and respect you. Um, it's just been a pleasure talking with you both. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank, thank you both for coming on. Um, I, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Um, I've benefited very greatly from the uh, content that Reasons to Believe puts out. And I, Aaron, I really enjoyed your book. And like I told you over email, nice. I mean, it was it that was the book that kind of pushed me over. I thought you made a very persuasive case, and that's that's kind of like in the back of my head why I wanted to have you know you and and Fuzz on because it's like you know uh, I've read both both of your material. I've read a whole bunch of both of your books. I was just like, what if I could get these guys together and just have a conversation and have it on the channel? And that would just be such an awesome thing to to do to just you know. And, and then have people ask questions. I just thought that that would be awesome. And it has been awesome. And uh, thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. And uh, I want to give a shout out uh, because, you know, Cerebral Faith Live is now, you know, also uh, on the Cerebral Faith podcast. I've used the two. Um, I have to verbally shout out, give a shout out to the patrons, not just do an in credit where they roll up because that will translate to audio well. Um Shout-outs to my patrons, Ron Minton, Red Blade Flame, Steel Cat, Slam RN, Andre Melnick, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan D. Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support this ministry financially, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you. <laughs>